be seated. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the beginning of the book of Revelation. We'll eventually settle down for the most part in verse 18. We'll start reading, however, back in verse 8, so just be prepared for that. Tonight we gather and celebrate and remember the death of a man, not his life. This is sort of the opposite of most memorial services. Typically, we will talk about mourning the loss of somebody and celebrating the life of that individual, but here, we don't mourn his death. We celebrate his death. Christians often do this. We do really weird things, things that put us out of step with the rest of the world. It seems at times like the weirder we get, the closer to the true heart of Christianity we are. We don't just celebrate his death. We actually have a feast celebrating that death where we symbolically eat his body and drink his blood. This man who we think is the Lord of life, who is the greatest man who ever lived, that we are happier to know than any person in the world, who was killed by wicked, lawless, and sinful men who show no remorse for their crimes as far as we can tell. And we remember his death and his blood and we give thanks for it. It's a very strange, strange thing. Even today, today we call it Good Friday. We don't call it Murderous Friday. We don't call it Insidious Friday. We don't call it Hateful Friday. We don't call it Sinful Friday, but Good Friday. Typically, when we remember a day for something that happens on it, when that thing is evil and wicked, we name it as such. If you're Irish, you know what Bloody Sunday is. If you're Americans, you know what the day that lives in infamy is. This is good. This is what we would expect if we had a murderous tyrant die. We would call that day good. But this is the Lord of all. It does take a little bit of explaining, doesn't it? I mean, you and I, probably if you are gathered here for this, know why we call it good. This is the day of our redemption, as we have been singing about that the Lord was broken and bloodied for our sins. And it is by his wounds, as we have already said, that we are healed. We should say at the outset, though, that today is a little bit of a misnomer. Crossway used to have this service at noon, which would place it squarely on Friday. But technically, while we call this moment Friday, it's now almost 7 o'clock p.m., it undoubtedly, for Jewish people, would have already been considered, as the sun begins to fade, Saturday. It is no longer Good Friday, but as the church has long called it, Holy Saturday. Saturday isn't a day that Christians talk much about. We understand what the first day is for. The first day is Jesus dying for our sins. We know what the third day is for. It is for him resurrecting in our vindication. But what is that middle day for? What happens on Saturday? Why did it last three days? One might say that the reason why nothing really, it seems, happens on Saturday is because Jesus was resting. After all, it was the Sabbath. And that's a good answer. It's a right answer. But interestingly, the early church and and throughout the history of the church, the tradition has been that there is a much fuller response than simply Jesus was taking it easy on Saturday. To get a glimpse of this, we're going to turn to something that is even weirder than calling this Good Friday. It's something from the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to read from the Apostles' Creed, which was translated from the Latin in 1662 by the Church of England. 
According to that translation, the Apostle Creed reads, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So, do you hear the weird part? Now, as Baptists, we're prone to point out in the Holy Catholic Church, it means Catholic small c, so we're okay there. The other really, really weird part of that is he descended into hell. That doesn't sit well with us. And well, it shouldn't. It's actually a bad translation that happened in 1662 because they didn't understand the difference between these two Latin words that were commonly used in the manuscripts that until the Enlightenment and the Reformation had almost synonymous meanings of not descending into hell, a place of eternal torment, but rather descended to the dead. Meaning, Hades, the place where all of the dead are gathered. And the Old Testament sometimes calls it Sheol, where all of the dead go. The church, early on, in one of the most important creeds, says it is important that we recognize that when he was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended to the dead. We ought to be clear that this isn't hell, that that translation of it is not good. Jesus doesn't have to descend to hell as a place of eternal torment because he is not tormented eternally. Jesus mentions on the cross in John's gospel, it is finished. His humiliation and his suffering and his pain stops when he dies. He does not suffer longer when he goes to the dead, but to the dead he goes nevertheless. His body remains in the tomb and his human soul descends to the pit where every human soul goes. While this idea in the early church was built off of many passages, one of the chief ones was Revelation 1, verse 18, which we will turn to and read from in a minute. Our goal tonight is simple, to see why the church has long since confessed that Jesus Christ descended to the dead, why such a confession is important, and to give you a very strong, I think, biblical rationale for it. So, to provide some context for 118, let's go back to verse 8, and we will pick up reading in the book of Revelation, verse 8 from chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of our God. The first thing you notice when you read this passage is John's startling picture of Jesus, which is really hard to actually visually picture. And we're introduced to this right away, I think as a helpful reminder that the images in the book of Revelation are not meant for us to make sort of a composite picture of, but to gain sort of a theological understanding of who Jesus was. After all, with a face shining like the sun in full strength, it's hard to believe that he could have seen a sword coming out of his mouth or made out his eyes or seen hair that was white as wool. I don't know if you've ever looked at the sun. In just a minute, you might be able to, and it's terribly bright. We're not even supposed to look at it when it's like an eclipse and the moon's in front of it, let alone at full strength. The picture here is that Jesus is incredibly exalted, mighty, powerful, lifted up, pure, holy. The fact that his His face shines like the sun is reminiscent of the fact that when Moses came down in the book of Exodus from meeting with God, his face shone with the glory of the Lord. His was a reflected glory from God. We get the understanding here that so bright is the face of Jesus that it doesn't reflect the glory of God, but it irradiates the glory of God. It produces the glory. It is the source of the glory. This is backed up. By Jesus, as John falls dead at his feet, which is an important point we will return to, Jesus lays his right hand on him and says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Just like the God Almighty, the Lord God Almighty says in the very beginning of our reading today, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the A and the Z. I am the first and the last. Jesus says the exact same thing. This God of glory and power is none less than Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says, I am the living one. Probably not just one who happens to live, but the living one. He is, as God would say in the book of Exodus again, I am. I am what I am. I am the one who is. I am the existent one. So is Jesus. But then interestingly, at the end of that, he says, I am the living one. And then we have recorded, I died should probably be translated just a little bit different. Just a little bit. Because I died makes it sound like died is the verb, but that's not really what he says here, and I think it makes a difference. It's, I became dead, or I became a dead one. I became like all of the other dead ones. Back in Galatians chapter 4, something that Pastor referred to when he was praying uh, just a second ago, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, and we read there that he came, came forth, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. But the word that's actually there in the Greek is not the word born. It is the word became. He became as one under a woman. He became as one from a woman. He became as one under the law. What that means is that Jesus, the son of God, incarnates himself. He takes on a nature that is not his. He takes on the nature of one who is born under a woman. 
one who is born under the, the authority of the law. In the same manner, just as he takes on a nature that is not his without dropping anything before, he then, likewise, in the book of Revelation, takes on something else that wasn't his. Death. He becomes flesh, and he becomes one who dies. But, he says, behold, I am alive forevermore. Why is that, though? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why is it that Jesus is alive forevermore? Because there are plenty of resurrections in the Bible. Plenty might be a bit much, but there's at least some. We know Lazarus was raised from the grave, but we don't still think that he's kicking around Jerusalem. We, we know that there are other children who have been raised. Elisha and Elijah raised people from the dead, and we don't think that they are still around. What is it about this particular resurrection that allows Jesus to say, I am alive forevermore? If it is anything, it is that next phrase, I have the keys of death and Hades. Keys in the ancient days were just like keys do today. They allow you to open things up for people to come in and close them down so that they cannot leave. It has the added benefit of giving you the authority of who can be in and who can be out. As John falls dead before Jesus, Jesus is trying to calm him, not simply by saying that I'm alive, it's good for me, you ought to be happy for me, but by saying I am alive because I hold the keys to death in Hades. I am the one who tells people when they die, and I am the one who tells people when they can be alive. You don't have to fear and you don't have to be dead. Be strengthened. Death in Hades, we hear the word Hades, we often think of hell. It is the way in which the word is even translated in our Bibles often. In Matthew 16, 17 through 18, as Peter rightly confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus answers him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The same word, gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. While we typically hear the word hell, and again, we think of this sort of conscious eternal torment, in the Greco-Roman world, and there is a word for hell that is different than the word that's being used here. In the Greco-Roman world, and in Second Temple Jewish thought, everywhere you go, both death and Hades tended to be personified. That is, they are talked about as though they are people, especially death. John speaks of death and Hades in exactly the same way. So in Revelation 6-8, just one page over, he says, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Whenever I hear that, and I know that Hades is meant to be more of a place than it is a personification, I can't help but think of Ghostbusters and that little containment unit. It's like he's carrying the abode of the dead behind him. Right? And so death is riding, and he is killing, and he is filling up the containment behind him. He is the power, Hades is the place. The same thing happens in Revelation 20. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So what, what is really going on here? Jesus, it seems, takes on death as a human. His body goes into the tomb, and his soul departs to the place where the dead go. He being the very God on high, whose face radiates with the glory of God, who is nothing less than 
the very divinity of God, has not lost any of that divinity, has not lost that power, through his humanity is able to descend to the place of the dead and rest away from death the very keys to the thing that locks every human being in forever. So, he destroys the power of death by taking keys from it and can open and close as he so chooses. Acts 20, or excuse me, Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter is explaining the resurrection, saying God raised him up. And what I want you to hear today is very clear. When Peter says God raised him up, you are prone to hear the Father raised him up. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says God raised him up because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Well, there's nothing in Jesus' human nature that makes it impossible for him to be held by death. What makes it impossible for him to be held by death is the fact that he was God himself. And no human can exit Hades. No human can walk out of death. But God can. And God sort of sneaks his way into the abode of the dead through the person and the work of Jesus Christ as a human being. God raises him up because it is impossible for God to be dead. All of this might be true, you think. We are perhaps reading a bit into that one phrase. I do think, however, that there is a a biblical pattern set for this. I think that there is one major biblical event that really helps us to understand why we should have expected this all along. We have these sporadic mentions of resurrections in the Old Testament. You've got Daniel 2 and, and, or Daniel 12, and maybe you, you're thinking of Ezekiel 37. And there are certain incidents that maybe point at resurrections, but, but how, how are we supposed to conceive? How are we supposed to know that there is this sort of biblical way of thinking about God descending to the place of the dead in order to bring his people out? I will tell you that I think that that incident is the Exodus, and I'll tell you why. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 26, 37, 39, 41, 46, we have continual references to the early fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, specifically as the sons are kind of embodied in Joseph. They're always particularly going down to Egypt, or they're warned not to go down into Egypt. Now, the way in which the world was thought of back then was a three-tiered world. You had heaven in the very top, you had the earth, and you had the dead beneath. And you might be thinking, well, of course they go down to Egypt because Egypt is south of them. But you have to know that the early Israelites didn't have maps oriented the same way that we did. Going down didn't mean going south. Quite often, when people talked about going up to Jerusalem, they talked about going south into Jerusalem. They talked about going up because literally Jerusalem was up on a hill. When they talk about going down to Egypt, it's not just descending. It is literally getting closer to the pit. And what's more, almost every time that that idea of going down to Egypt is mentioned, it is mentioned in the realm of either cursing or in the realm of famine and death. So after the great promise to Abraham... In chapter 12, that he will be blessed by God and a nation will come from him and those whom he blesses 
who bless him will be blessed and those who curse him will be cursed. We read that now there was a famine in the land. When there is a famine in the land, you die. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. He descended into Egypt, for the famine was severe in the land. Chapter 26. Now it's Isaac's turn. The Lord appears to Isaac and says to him, Do not descend to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For you and your offspring I will give all these lands and will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. This is the land of blessing. Don't go to Egypt, for that is not the land of blessing. Implied, that is the land of curse. In chapter 37, the brothers who have already thrown Joseph into a pit, which is symbolic of death, and frankly, want to kill him, nevertheless, hold back on that so they can make a buck. They sell him to traders who are going down to Egypt, and in chapter 39, Joseph himself descends and is brought down to Egypt. In chapter 41, verse 57, all of the earth came to Egypt and Joseph to buy grain, came down, because the famine was severe over all the earth. There's death everywhere, so where do they go? They go to Egypt. God himself is trying to support Jacob and tell Jacob to go. God says to him in chapter 46, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will descend with you into Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And all of these, what we have is this continual refrain that the, the patriarchs are going to go down into death, or they're warned about going down into Egypt, where there is nothing but death. And indeed, when the people start to dwell there permanently, what they find is that even as they are multiplying for life, the one who rules over them wants nothing to do with their life, but seeks only their death. He begins to put to death the people. He is worried about them revolting and leaving, and so... He contrives many ways to put an end to them. In Exodus chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go. My people are to leave. And Pharaoh says, Your people cannot leave. In Exodus 3, we have the same promise that we had made to Jacob. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have descended to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land that is good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey. That repeated word descend is the very word that is used in something like Ephesians 4.9 and Romans 10.7, likely to imply that Jesus descended to the dead. Isaiah 51 has an unlikely confirmation of this. It might help if you turn in your Bibles there. We'll be there for just a brief moment. In Isaiah 51, although Isaiah is perhaps the most hope-filled prophet, even when he is announcing the, the destruction of the people from their land. He is going to, the Lord will remove them. Babylon will come in. Assyria will come in. They will suffer. 
for their sin. Yet in chapter 40, there is this great turn in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is told to comfort the people of God. This culminates in Isaiah 53, the passage that we read earlier where the suffering servant of God will suffer for the sins of the people. And he will pay their way back to the Lord. Before we get there, though, we end, or we have this very interesting chapter, chapter 51. The question that presents itself to all of the Israelites who are hearing this, knowing that their destruction is sure, but hearing this echoing of comfort in the book of Isaiah is to ask, what does this look like? You are telling us at one point in time that we are going to be destroyed. And then with the other hand, you are telling us that God is going to be kind and gracious to us. What does this look like? How can all of this happen in our lifetimes? And it doesn't happen in one lifetime for many of them. I think Isaiah 51 is Isaiah's attempt to explain it to him. There he says this. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, you who are looking around trying to find the Lord. Where is the Lord in all of this? How is the Lord going to rescue us? You who seek the Lord. Don't just look for the Lord, but look backwards. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. He says, look back. Remember what happened with Isaac. When Isaac was born, he was born to a man and to a woman who had no earthly right having children. Even the way in which Isaiah brings this topic up is instructive to us. He calls Abraham a rock. He calls Sarah a quarry. Rocks and quarries are good for a lot of things. Making babies is not one of them. The point is that just as like bears like, things come, according to Genesis, according to their kinds. Human beings bring forth babies. And yes, Sarah and Abraham were human beings. But they were as good as dead. They were no better at producing human beings than a quarry of rocks would have been. And yet God brought them out. Rocks are dead. But God will bring life from them. Paul, reflecting on this in Romans 4, says this, Abraham believed in God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Who is this God that Abraham believed in? He is the God, Paul says, who gives life to the dead. And so when Paul is thinking of the birth of Isaac, he thinks of it not in terms of a miraculous birth, but he is thinking of it in terms of life coming from the dead. He thinks of it in terms of resurrection. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Isaiah is saying, it's, remember that you began from a resurrection. Your entire nation began from a resurrection. Read verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. How is he going to comfort Zion? He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her deserts like the garden of the Lord. That which is dead, which does not support life, will be made to support life. He will restore you. You who are dead, he will make alive. Isaiah goes on to talk about the righteousness of God, his coming righteousness and his coming salvation. For us, I think the important verses 
will be verses 9 through 11. And listen to how Isaiah speaks here. What is he going to, he's, he's going to call upon the Lord to act, but listen to how he calls upon the Lord to act. To bring this resurrection, to bring these people from death to life, how is he going to act? What does Isaiah look back to? He says this, Awake. Awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago picture of the arm of the Lord reminds us of Exodus 15, where repeatedly, when God leads his people through the Red Sea, Moses and Miriam speak not of the arm of the Lord, but of the hand of the Lord. Almost as though Isaiah is saying, you remember how the hand of the Lord delivered you, but now we need more. We need the arm of the Lord. Great was that work, greater still is the work that he must do. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? The Rahab there is not the prostitute of Jericho, but rather this sort of mystical or mythical sea dragon who is clearly identified in this passage with no one else but Egypt. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a way through the depths of the sea for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and singing. Sorry, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You have a couple of ways to take this. To think that the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. You can think that this is a a promise that those who live through all of the stuff that you're going to go through, those who live through all the tribulations of being exiled to a foreign land, those who are able to exist through Assyria and through Babylon and through all of the other other problems and, and dissolutions that you are going to go through, if you can go through that and if you live, then the Lord will call you back. But that's hard to square with the very thing that Isaiah began this chapter with, which is you were brought forth in a resurrection. The exodus itself here is pictured as a part of that resurrection. What are we supposed to look back to to picture how God is going to do this? He says, you look back to Egypt, how I descended into Egypt and I brought you out of Egypt. I am going to do that again. Only All of the ransomed will come with me. This word, everlasting joy. Different phrase, same word Jesus used when he says, I live forevermore. The Exodus is many things. It is a picture of our salvation. It is a picture of our leaving the earth and traveling to heaven, to the good and faithful land, flowing with milk and honey. But it is just as much a picture of, of God descending into the very place of death to redeem his people, to bring them up alive again. He does this ultimately and finally in Jesus Christ, who hears the suffering of his people, hears the laments of his people, not only takes on flesh to save them through his blood and his body, but descends into the very pit of the dead, so that he might bust open those doors for them forevermore, so that no longer would death have any hold over them, so that no longer would death have any control over them. 
He wrests the keys of Hades from death itself. And now he is never more to die. Jesus has won the keys of death in Hades. He has finished his work, his suffering on the cross. And even though he descends, it is not a descent in humiliation. It is a descent in victory. In descending, he shows himself the Lord of the dead. In resurrecting, he shows himself the Lord of the living. And in ascending, he shows himself the Lord of everything in creation. Friends, there is no realm, there is no place, either spiritual or physical, where Jesus Christ has not made his majesty and his lordship known and felt. And this is really what I think the meaning of Matthew 16 is. When we hear Jesus say, I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't stand against it. Often what we picture is we're going to go out and we're going to preach the gospel to lost people whose souls are as good as in hell already. And the preaching of the gospel will break through the gates of hell from the outside going in and will pull redeemed souls out of there. It's not bad. That's fairly close to what actually happens when we preach to people. Those people without the gospel are as good as dead. Their souls are as much entrapped as hell as they would be if the gospel was never given to them. But I think he means something different by it. He says, I will build my church. We oftentimes just project that into the future. The church that will come, he will build it. But the word church both in Matthew and elsewhere, just means the gathering of my people. I will build the gathering of my people, even those who have died. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David and Solomon. Moses and Joshua. I will gather my people to me. Because the gates of hell cannot stand me. It isn't that he is raiding death from the outside. He is raiding death from the inside. Jesus does this so that it might be known far and wide that he has power over everything. He is the Lord of both the living and the dead. Death no longer has final say over us so that every knee, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, will bow at the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. For he descended to the dead, and he delivers his people. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for the day that you have given to us and for the time that we have had to read of your word and to think on these things. How grateful we are that our Lord has taken on not just our flesh and our life in obedience to you for us, as great as that is and as mighty of a thing as that is to proclaim but we are just, just as happy and filled with joy and satisfaction to know that he not only took on our flesh, but he took on the penalty of our flesh. He took on even death. He became one who is dead for us so that he might show power over that which controls the very pit of the dead. He descends so that he might free all of those who are held in captivity so that he might let his people go. Praise be to God 
not just who lives, but who died. We thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.